Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. It is Friday, July 6th from the Newsroom Studio, and we're calling this the Hail to the Bus Driver edition. You guys all know that song, right? Hail to the Bus Driver. Hail to the Bus Driver, Bus Driver, Bus Driver. Hail to the Bus Driver, Bus Driver. I didn't think I'd actually sing on this before. Go on. No, 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 it's good. I wanted to call it Bus Stop. Bus Stop. No, no, no. You know who else likes to sing? Uh, Paul Simons. I do. Good morning, <laughs> Keith Geron. We're all in our places with sunshiny faces. Yes. Uh, Graham Thompson, our legislature columnist, is also here today. The only bus song I know is Scottish, and it's called You Can't Push Your Granny Off the Bus. Uh, can you give us like a couple of oh, verses? I, I would, but you wouldn't want to hear it. Uh, That's a good life lesson. We, 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 we left out the wheels on the bus go round and round. Oh, uh, I thought about that one too, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Claire Clancy is here as well, our legislature reporter. Hello. Well, no bus songs from you? No. Nope. <laughs> no. You know that song. Um, do you know the second verse of the song? I just looked this up. Uh, he screams and he cusses. He rams other buses. Hail to the bus driver, bus driver, man. I oh, thought that was also apt. Very apt. Very I mean, apt, yeah. 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 So transportation minister, Brian Mason, uh, retiring. Uh, we'll talk about him in a bit. Uh, but first, I think we, we want to discuss uh, a story that Claire wrote on, I think it was on Wednesday, uh, the provincial government decided to dump a whole bunch of data on 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 the public. The uh, week that Janet French went on hospital. I know. Went on hos- sorry, that's a, that's a slip of the tongue, so I'm looking at Keith, the health reporter. The week that Janet French, our education reporter, went on vacation, on holiday. I know. Uh, she wasn't here for this because she, she caused this in many ways. But Claire, uh, tell, tell us what happened. Yeah, sure. So uh, basically... Um, There was an Auditor General report that came out in February that really slammed the government in terms of how they're tracking funding that's given annually to try and reduce um, class sizes. It's about $290 million annually. And um, the government finally kind of responded to this report this week by very quietly releasing a massive amount of data online. And it also happens to come two weeks after uh, Janet French did her big investigation into class sizes. And you can read all of that on our website. Um, But yeah, just, you know, a huge amount of data to go through. Um, So everyone's kind of looking at the numbers, but what it means is that people like um, from the Alberta School Boards Association and the Alberta Teachers Association uh, have access now to class size data from 2004 to 2017, which previously they have not been able to look at. Um, So I think in the coming weeks we'll be able to see more closely exactly what class sizes look like and how they've been affected over the last um, more than a decade. Well, unfortunately, Paula uh, had to leave due to, due to a family emergency, but that's okay. We still got Claire and Graham here, and we were talking about class sizes. So, Claire, um, you've explained a little bit about the, the genesis of this. What's the actual use of this? Like, why, why this big dump? Who's actually going to benefit from this? Yeah, and I think that's a, the key question here because, to be honest, it seems like everyone's just starting to review the data now, so no one really knows Um, like what we'll find in it. But the president of the Alberta Teachers Association, Greg Jeffrey, said that uh, what it will do is um, hopefully show where pressure points are in the system and then they can address them. Because what's happened so far is that over the last few years, teachers and associations and school boards only have an idea of averages. They don't actually have specific classes they can look at and say, you know, this is where we had 60 students compared to, you know, 
the average of like 40 whatever students. So this way they'll be able to go through the data, look at where um, teachers are kind of particularly overworked, and then uh, and then hopefully you know the ATA said what they're hoping for is to see some action from the government in the future. Um, they have called for the hiring of 2,000 more teachers uh, earlier this year. Um, which they said would really alleviate some of the pressure. But um, so far, you know, we haven't seen any government commitments tied to this data dump. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, even if they do prove that class sizes are more than what's supposed to be, what more what the limits are supposed to be, um, not entirely sure what the government will do in that case. So it doesn't sound like we can afford 2,000 more teachers. It doesn't sound like we may even have space to put in 2,000 more teachers. Um, this may be a Jason Kenney problem in a year from now as well. And the UCP has been really quiet on this issue. They haven't really got into it. And it's interesting you know, that we did the, the series, Janet did a series, and there's been very little response from the UCP. Uh, we pushed them to get a response on the class size issue, and they said basically, we had a one-line response from a few weeks ago saying, the NDP spends a lot of money on health and education and doesn't get very good results. They didn't want to get into it because, first of all, this is an issue that goes back to the, uh, the old PC the Conservatives uh, under Klein and moving forward. Um, so that also, they don't have an answer. You know, if, if, if they were to say, yeah, there's a problem with class sizes, then you've got to address it, and how do you address it? So they're not, not even addressing this issue, really. They're just avoiding it because they don't want to get into talking about class sizes. To them, it's all about the, the deficit and the debt. And I think, so they have no answer. Plus, they don't want to get back into, to, into maybe thumping the old PCs over the head. And the NDP has a problem because they inherited this issue and they haven't got a solution except for you know, spending more money. Exactly. And, right? And unfortunately, it comes down to kind of what the funding priorities are for boards. So the Alberta um, School Board Association, President Lori um, Jess said that, uh, you know, said that over the last few years, it, this hasn't be come up kind of at a table as a major issue while she's been speaking with people. So I think class sizes, as the, although it obviously looks like a problem, the question is, what are the funding priorities? And we'll have to see what happens kind of in the coming months with that. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's move to uh, our next topic. Uh, Brian Mason, uh, veteran of the legislature, uh, has announced this week that he is uh, stepping down, that this will be his last uh, last term in office. Uh, Claire, you were there at the press conference. Uh, what was that like? Yeah, Graham and I were both there, and uh, he started by saying, uh, I have decided not to run in the next election. Does anyone have any questions? And, you know, having a typical <laughs> fun Brian Mason news conference, he's um, really known for for being kind of a very witty MLA, um, and he's government house leader and transportation minister currently. Um, so I think he'll be really missed in in at the legislature, but, you know, within the NDP, he's the longest serving NDP MLA. Um, you know, he was leader for a decade uh, before Notley uh, took over leadership and then won, uh, won the 2015 election. Um, and uh, the, the premier, you know, also said that Brian Mason has her deepest uh, thanks for all of the work that he's done. Um, you know, but Mason basically said he doesn't know what's next for him, but he said it's time it's time to leave uh, leave politics. And uh, yeah, I think he's leaving on a high note, obviously. So it's what better time to leave than when you're in, in government when you never thought, he said he never thought that the NDP would, he'd never sit on that side of the house. He said that was one of the best days he had in politics was when he could sit on the government side. I bet. You know, Graham, um, 
What is the legacy of, yeah. of Ryan Mason? Well, I think it's more to do with him keeping the NDP alive as opposed to him being in, in government. You know, yeah, he was Minister of Transportation and Minister of Infrastructure for, he had two ministries plus house, government house leader. Um, but I think he'd be remembered as a person who kept the NDP alive. And, and he was, uh, for many years, the most effective MLA in the House. And of course, he was opposition NDP. And people made a point about how he got along with other people from the, the PCs. He'd have lunch with Ted Morton. He was good friends with Dave Hancock. He used to be roommates in university. Uh, he was friends with the, op- with the government because the government back then didn't see him as a threat. It's interesting how Klein would be quite kind to the NDP because they were two people, maybe four in a good year. And of course, then they become government. But I think that um, Mason was, he was always, he was he was very quick, uh, quick-witted. Um, he was always open uh, with the media. Of course, he was opposition. He was desperate, of course, for attention. Uh, but I think that um, people will read into this, aha, the government's you know, on its last legs. This is the third minister to announce they won't be running next election with Brandy Payne and uh, Stephanie McLean have both uh, announced they're not running. But the difference is Mason is 65 this year, and he was sort of hinting he's going to step down. Even before the last election, I wrote a political obituary after he stepped down as leader to kickstart the leadership race, and he was really pushing behind the scenes, really pushing um, Rachel Notley to run. And I wrote a, 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 a column thinking, you know, this is basically his time. Uh, hopefully he'll stay on as an MLA. And at that point, they were thinking for the last election, the conventional wisdom within the NDP was they would form the official opposition. They were going to not win the election, but then Mason would be sort of the, the elder statesman to help train all the, the new NDP MLAs who'd be elected all. like They figured maybe 20, maybe 22. And of course, and then he would uh, then quietly fade out uh, towards the end of this term and then go retire in B.C., well, of course, then they won the election. And yes, he is very excited, but at the same time, before that election, um, they weren't all celebrating. The last few days, they realized, oh, no, we could actually win this. And they weren't ready to take over. And then Brian uh, Mason got two portfolios, not one, but two, because at that point, Notley didn't know who could actually take on a portfolio. She had very few people who had experience. He was, so, so she really relied on him. And then, of course, over time, um, infrastructure became the portfolio for uh, Sandra Jansen. He is only transportation now. And the sense is that, yes, he was going to resign, uh, retire. It's not, it's not unexpected. It's a problem for the NDP in a sense. If he'd run again, he would be sure to win that riding. Edmonton Highlands, Norwood. Yeah, absolutely. He'd, he'd win no problem at all. Now that he's stepping down, um, you know, that, that gives the opposition or the you know, a chance maybe to get, I'm not saying they would, I think the NDP is pretty solid there. Um, in fact, I wrote in my column this week, talked about um, uh, Ralph Klein said of Mason, it would take an atomic bomb to get him out, to defeat him. And I think that, uh, so by Mason leading now, if he had stuck around and run again, of course the danger is with the UCP doing so well in the polls, if they win and all of a sudden he becomes an opposition MLA again, and then he'd retire. And it wouldn't look very good for the uh, the NDP. So I think that leading now, he's leading on a high. He, he's won 10 elections in a row, both provincial and civic. 
and uh, he can go out uh, holding his head high. Yeah, his riding Edmonton Highlands, uh, it, I mean, it's a pretty strong NDP mm -hmm. territory anyway, so I think the NDP will ha still have a good chance there. Yes. But it's not a sure thing anymore, That's because the, be, the well, opposition yeah. can can now load up on him if they wanted. And he did say that, um, you know, that Rachel Notley asked him to run again, but it's mm -hmm. not a surprise that, you know, at 65, he's decided it's time to move on. I don't think it's a sign that, right. um, that he's stepping down because he's convinced of a loss. Like, that's not what this is. No, I, I, I think this is not the the signal the NDP is in trouble. There are many other signals that the NDP is <laughs> yeah. in trouble. This is not one of them. Yeah. yeah. It's just funny, his his career's sort of come full circle. I mean, we, we call it hail to the bus driver because many people may not know he actually, his first career was as a bus driver for Edmonton Transit, went from there to being a city councillor and then, and then to the NDP. Um, and and he, of course, now he's transportation minister. He's done some announcements at, at Edmonton Transit bus yards uh, in the last year with with Amarjeet. So he, another bus driver, former bus driver, who's now our federal infrastructure minister. It's just kind of funny. But and, and go ahead. Well, he said that the uh, you know he, we talked about what are you proudest of, and he said building up um, you know his ward, Ward Three, was really something he's also very very proud of, and that was an 11 year career. Uh, and he advocated for different facilities being built, including LRT stations and libraries and a new police station. So he pointed that out as kind of one of the highlights. Um, and then he said he's also very proud of the, um, you know, his the work he's done in government as an infrastructure uh, infrastructure minister. Uh, I thought what was fun though was he said that opposition was definitely more fun for him, which you you can imagine <laughs> it would be. Well, you could have you saw um, if you did pay attention to question period in those years when he was in opposition, he was having uh, a heck of a time uh, loading up against the government, um, and he 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 knew it uh, for what it was. He called it it's a bit of political theater. He he used it as his performance stage. Uh, him and Thomas Lukaszek, the former uh, deputy premier, had a, a kind of a frenemies thing going, uh, playing out in the House, which was kind of fun. Uh, is it fair to say that for the, the NDP when they've been in government, that sure, he was a cabinet minister, but perhaps his most valuable role <coughs> was as house minister. Would you agree with that? The house leader. The house leader, yes. Yeah. I mean, like, currently, uh, he's yes, he's one that can stand up. He knows a lot of the rules, and he can you know take on the UCP. Um, yeah, he reminds me a bit of Dave Hancock in that way. There was a role that Dave Hancock took as House Leader with the, the government to um, bat back you know uh, points of order and points of privilege against the uh, the opposition. And um, Mason has done that I think, very effectively in the House. But going back to I think that he he will be best remembered as a person who helped keep the NDP alive. He says as himself as opposition leader uh, leader of the NDP opposition, that he was proud of uh, standing up against the third way. Remember Ralph Klein wanted to bring in privatized health care, and, um, right. and uh, Mason helped lead the fight against that. And I think as, as a, an opposition politician, he's very I think, proud of that. But I think, to me, it was him keeping the NDP alive and also keeping the road open for Rachel Notley. Right, yeah, for that breakthrough that they right. finally had. Uh, well, let's switch gears. Um, pipelines again. It's never far from, from the news. Uh, so there was a, a little bit of news this week that the, the schedule for the Trans Mountain expansion, the, the construction, yeah, has been, uh, has been announced. So, uh, but it was also a trigger, I guess, for uh, opponents of the pipeline. Protests, yeah, yeah. What, yeah, what's going on? So, yeah, the, the construction, it's not as if they're putting a shovel in the ground, really. They, they'll start over August, for example, to be um, putting up... Uh, 
stakes, like you know, like staking and, and surveying the, the land in Alberta for the twinning of the of the um, the pipeline. So they're they're doing sort of the pre-construction work over the summer um, before they actually start getting the actual like literally shovels in the ground. But this is it's a signal to people that yes, they actually are now moving. This is it's still Kinder Morgan doing it, who's getting money from the federal government that's going to be buying out Kinder Morgan in August. Um, but the, the pre-construction work has started, and this is uh, a signal for the government to say in Alberta, look, it is actually going ahead. It's real. This, of course, it's a signal to the opposition, meaning to the uh, environmentalists, to get their um, protests ready, and we'll see what actually happens. It's not actually, like I mentioned, the backhoes digging holes in the ground, but it will give I think, maybe something for them to actually start to protest. We'll see how it goes. Um, Notley, of course, keeps saying that the construction will start. One thing we're waiting for, though, is a decision, a ruling from the Federal Court of Appeal. And that was, um, uh, at a, there was a case last fall in October. We had First Nations questioning the wisdom of the federal government, the federal cabinet, approving the whole pipeline. Well, that ruling hasn't come down yet. And you keep thinking, and you got to think, if that comes down and says, two thumbs up, go ahead, then they can start construction. If that comes back and says, wait a minute, maybe they weren't right to give approval to this. That's a major problem for this whole project. So that, we thought that decision was going to come down first at the end of the year. It didn't. Then we thought the spring, then I was told June. Well, June's come and gone. Maybe this month, um, but it should be coming down, we keep being told pretty soon. But that's a major issue for the construction. If that comes down, that decision comes down in favor of the pipeline, then they can actually say, yeah, we're going ahead. Until it comes down, there's still that question mark lingering over the pipeline. Even though it's won 16 court cases in a row, there's one more. Right, to clear. the big one. Yeah. Well, protesters aren't waiting for that court decision. Well, of course not. <laughs> but uh, It'll be a busy summer then as of well, yeah, August. This is it. Yeah. yeah, well, August, you know, we're in July, August, and then we're into the fall. So I think that uh, we're going to see more movement both directions in this terms of the construction as well as the protests. And it's going to continue to be a, a huge issue up until the election in the spring. We'll just see pipeline, pipeline, pipeline mm-hmm. as we have for the last year. Yeah. Yay. Yes. <laughs> Our favorite topic. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's obviously very clear the prime minister, who's got some other troubles of his own right now, but he can't afford to let that, uh, that pipeline fail uh, now that they bought in. Um, but uh, it, it's, uh, as you're right, that court case and, and potentially... If the protests start growing in size, start growing in audacity, as they did this week when some people dangled from the, the bridge to block uh, tanker traffic, um, then uh, that's going to be an interesting problem for the, the federal government to solve. Uh, last topic I think uh, we'll, we'll take a look at today was, um, well, is the, the sunshine list. So I think we're a couple of years into this. Uh, June 30th was the day when all the boards, agencies, and commissions, as well as the government itself, had to release the list of people that met a certain certain income threshold. We get to see who made what uh, from the public sector. Uh, not a real surprise in a lot of ways. Uh, a lot of the names on the list are the same as we've seen in the past. Uh, the head of the uh, Alberta Electric System Operator, uh, Alberta Energy Regulator Workers' Compensation Board, um, the two presidents of the University of Alberta and University of Calgary were on there. Uh, in the top 10, uh, as well as uh, some health executives, Bernie Yu, the head of AHS, and uh, Covenant Health, uh, their president, Patrick Dumelli. 
I guess the question for me is, is this useful? Uh, we're, we're a few years into this. Uh, it, what are you hearing? Are, are people interested in this? Do they think it's, it's good? Is this actually telling us anything about who's getting what in our government? Uh, has it changed anything? Because there's some still very, very high incomes here. I mean, I think from my perspective, I think it's very interesting. I don't know how much the general public cares because I think people assume that these um, these top bureaucrats make a lot of money. Uh, but it's a source of transparency for the jobs that journalists do. And, um, you know, looking at the Sunshine List every year is a really important part of our work because it's, you know, the, this is where millions of dollars are going of taxpayer money. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm like of two minds about this. I understand the need for transparency. There's sort of a, a voyeuristic aspect to this. And, you know, as, as to me, it's sort of um, window dressing transparency doesn't really tell you about what's actually happening inside government. It gives people a, a target and, and point that somebody's making $250,000. That's outrageous. Uh, I, I just find that you know, other jurisdictions have done it. We do it here. It's interesting, of course, when it first comes out, or at least when it first came out a few years ago, we're all over it. It's a big story. Now it comes out every year. We just we pay less and less attention to it. We do a few stories, and then it kind of goes away. The thing is, of course, if they were to hide this, you know, we'd spend a lot of time digging it out and do front page stories of who's, who's getting what. And it's wise just to put it out there. We do a day or two stories and then we forget about it. But I, I do think it's sort of a, a voyeuristic way of, of looking at what government does. And it's, to me, there's a questionable value in it. And Keith, did they change the threshold this year? It goes up every, every year, year. Oh, by, okay. by the cost of living. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that it, it adjusts every year. So what is it now? Uh, well, for uh, government, it's uh, a salary of something like 108000 uh, And it's just the salary. They also list their, their benefits on top of that. But then for agencies, boards, and commissions, it's 127000 and, and change. But that includes all compensations, not just the salary. So there's kind of different rules and different thresholds for the agencies, boards, and commissions, and then the government itself, which to me, again, is sort of an odd thing that you have two sets of rules there. But I think where it's useful, too, is if we see year to year, obviously, if there are massive changes in contracts, then that becomes a story and that becomes interesting. So if you monitor it year to year, then it becomes kind of more interesting. There's also a, a hole in it, at least for me, um, the province's doctors get paid uh, by the, mostly through the public purse, through uh, fee-for-service, right from Alberta Health. We don't get to see their information unless they work directly as an employee of Alberta Health Services. Uh, and I suspect that if we did get that doctor information, the top 10 list would change considerably. You'd see a lot, of, a lot more doctors on that list. And they will not release it. It is a, a, a big issue, obviously, with the physician community. I've uh, put in a FOIP request uh, a couple of months ago for a... Um, a financial information for a particular doctor and it was denied no records available at all so I, I think that's something that um, might be under discussion in the years ahead whether doctors should also be disclosed um, and there, there may be some other groups as well uh, ATB financial is exempt uh, AIMCO is exempt um, there may be good reasons for that but th those again are, are uh, areas of the government that we don't get to see uh, in terms of the compensation there well, let's, uh, let's end this with our usual segment, uh, Good Stuff from the Gallery. Uh, Claire, let's start with you. What have you got this week? 
Sure, I'm going to recommend a podcast, big surprise, and it's um, I've recommended this podcast before called Embedded. It's from NPR, but I'm going to recommend it because it's a specific series of stories that they've done um, called Coal Stories, and basically it's um, the fantastic journalist Kelly McEvers going to West Virginia and following people in uh, coal country for about a year. Uh, following like kind of right before electing Donald Trump and then following afterwards and it's basically about kind of why this uh, you know people in West Virginia or in coal country in particular uh, believed in a promise that Donald Trump made to them about getting coal workers back to work and then whether or not that promise actually panned out did it spoiler (laughs) spoiler it didn't (laughs) no no Um, I'm recommending something called A Visual History of the U.S. Census, uh, on the online publication called City Lab. And this is, uh, it's just kind of a fun read. Uh, it's um, uh, kind of an interesting way of describing the history of the U.S. Census and how it's been abused and manipulated over the years for political ends uh, by both parties. Um, quite, quite a fascinating look and very easy to read because it's uh, all done in a visual style. It's really, it's really quite cool. Uh, Graham, what have you got? Actually, it's nothing to read or, or uh, watch. It's actually to do something. Oh. Uh, and I went to, I haven't been there in years, to the Alberta Aviation Museum, the one downtown at the old Civic Airport. And I haven't been there in like 15 years. And it was really neat. They've got a lot of really good static displays. If you've got in an afternoon, even an hour or so with the kids, take them down there. It's really worthwhile. It shows you both some of the military aspect of the uh, history of Alberta aviation as well as the civic, you know, the bush pilots. And of course, you, you, we tend to forget in the Second World War, Edmonton was maybe the busiest airport in the, in the world, basically, because they're flying a lot of aircraft to Russia. Um, the Americans were using this as a base as well. Uh, and it was really, really, it's really a big part of Edmonton's history is the downtown airport and what happened there in terms of the military, but plus, of course, the, the um, over the 20s and 30s, the bush pilots were based here heading up north. So it's really interesting displays. They've got aircraft there. It's not that big. You know, I was at the RAF Museum in London in January. This isn't quite that big, but I got to say, for Edmonton, it's a really great introduction to an important part of our history. Yeah, that I've been there. It is it is fascinating. I, I, that is a good recommendation. I love museums, so I'm going to put that on my list. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the Press Gallery. Uh, next week, Emma Greeny should be back in the big chair. Hopefully, Paula will be back as well. We'll see you then next time on the Press Gallery. Mm-hmm.